Welcome to So You Want to Be a Leader, Really? A Defy Expectations podcast. I'm Vicky Hampson. And I'm Helen Honeyset. We're here to explore the highs and lows of leadership today with our guests and help you navigate the complexity of being a leader from every aspect, from that sublime to the ridiculous and everything in between. This week's guest is one of our own. Lawrence Morrison joined us at Defy Expectations at the end of last year, and he serves as a constant inspiration to continue to push ourselves to serve others, both of the work he's done with a charity that he'll talk about later, but as well as some of the expeditions and adventures he's been on in the last few years. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you, Walter. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. So before we go into all of the detail in our conversation with Lawrence, we want to let you know that you can find more about Lawrence on our website. So visit www.defyexpectations.co.uk for all that information. Lawrence, you recently trekked to Everest Base Camp. Can you please tell us more about why you did that? Why on earth did you do that? And what were some of your motivations for this amazing trip? Well, I've always enjoyed a challenge always through my life I've kind of thrived on being able to do something or having an objective to try and achieve, not just in work, but out with work. And for my 60th birthday, I decided that I was going to climb Kilimanjaro and I was going to do that for the small animal hospital in Glasgow, where they treated a little dog that I had and, and they were wonderful. So I did that for my 60th and actually happened to be in the top for that. And at that point on the top, I decided, right, I'm going to be back here on my 70th and hopefully 80th and 90th, but we'll see. But anyway, certainly from a 70th. So that was a plan and I was working towards that. And about two years ago, I suppose, I was having a chat with my wife's son who, who hadn't done much traveling or anything. And he'd met a girl recently who was a bit of a live one and the life and soul of the party. And they happened to be sitting in a pub somewhere drinking Jack Daniels and she turned to him and said, where's this made? And it's made in Tennessee. Why don't we go? So off they went to Tennessee and that started actually a, a, a number of travels through South America, USA, Mitsubishi. And the last one was to Vietnam. And, and during that time on their way back, they were talking about what they were going to do next. And Nick, who, who is the son said, well, I'd quite like to do Everest Base Camp. And she said to him, you'll never do that. And tragically, she was murdered after that when she came back. And I was chatting to Nick about various things. And he, he had said that to me. And I said to him, well, I'll come with you because I knew he probably wouldn't want to go on his own. And that's where it started, really, that we would, would both do Everest Base Camp and he would prove to the girl that he met that he actually did it. And actually, he went further. He went to place called Kalapatar, which is beyond base camp and the, and the foot of Everest. So that was really the motivation for doing it. But in addition to that, I worked for a charity that we might talk about later, which among other things helps veterans. And as a veteran myself, I was looking for something to do to put back into the veteran community and no idea what I wanted to do. So I joined this charity and I raised money for them because whatever challenge I've done, I've tried to raise money for something else as well. And I think we'll maybe come on to why I did that later on. So that was the motivation, Becky. An adventure like that drives such a degree of experience, but also the motivation that you had behind that was so personal, so supportive, so parental to a degree. Yeah. 
that you were automatically being led to do it for others. How does such an experience like that change your approach or change your motivation about how you do things? And how do you approach something like this with the determination to follow it through so that you've got that continuous push? Yeah, I think it isn't just for others. You know, I have to be honest, it's for myself too, because I'm, I'm as I said in the beginning, I've always been somebody that's had to, needed to work towards an objective, whatever that might be, whether it's in the work, it doesn't, it's not always been doing things like Everest Base Camp or Kilimanjaro. A lot of them been much simpler things like during my career, looking at where, where do I go next? What's the next challenge for me after a period of time working in an organization? How can I do things better? How can I get to that position that I want to get to, whatever that is, whether it's the next step? up or even sideways. So I've always been somebody that's looked at what objective do I need to achieve to get where I want to be. So some of it has been selfish. It hasn't always been for others. Naturally, I think as you grow older and you climb the ladder, you actually do things for others, sometimes without realizing it. You develop into that leader that understands that how you behave and what you do and how you're driven actually gets noticed by other people and they quite often tend to want to come with you. When I've done some of these things like Kilimanjaro, somebody from work actually decided, I'll, I'll do that as well. So they want to come with you too. So that, that's a kind of side benefit, if you like, from that. Lawrence, your, your response to that previous question with regards to motivation to do what you did says so much about you and that motivation. I paused at the time I was processing what you were talking about and that I think what stood out is that recognition and celebration of human life, which leads us to the next question around what, what your core of serving others as a, a real habit that's true to you. So not only did you celebrate that human life, but you continue to serve others. So thinking about that context of serving others, how do you believe it's made you a better leader over the years? Well... The ironic thing is that when you're a leader, whether you know it or not, you are actually serving others, whatever those others might be from, whether it's other employees, whether it's shareholders, investors, the board, your own team, local communities, you are actually serving others when you're doing that. And, and serving others is a real privilege because when you understand that that's what you're doing, that you are serving all those other people and that they're looking at you, it gives you focus and perspective. If you can begin to understand that, it makes you a better leader when you know that you're serving other people. I started off saying employees because they're actually the most important people that you're serving. That can sound a little bit twee, but it's not meant to be. It's hugely important and it's important for the organization because if you realize that, that you're serving those people that are working for you and that they're watching you, they're watching your behavior, they're watching how you come in every day, they're watching how you dress. They're watching how you talk to people and other people in that organization are forming a view of not only you, but the organization. And so that's really, really important to become a successful organization in, in my view. So it, if you can understand it really is about serving other people as well as yourself, um, as well as developing yourself, make yourself better every day if you can, learning something every day if you can, it permeates through the organization. People will recognize that and the organization will be better for it. I've worked in a number of organizations where I haven't always seen that, 
and it's not been the best organization to work with, interestingly enough. It's when you can see that kind of behavior from leaders, not just the, not just the CEO, but other leaders within the organization, because that's equally important because it tells you how you act in that organization. It tells you what's important to that organization. And therefore you can make judgments for yourself about whether it's the sort of company that you want to work in. So it's, it's, for me, it's hugely important that you recognize service to others is really important, has a knock-on effect in all sorts of ways. One of the things that caused us to start to find expectations is we had some really bad experiences with bad leaders. And I don't think they were doing anything necessarily intentionally wrong. I don't think it was malicious. They were just being taught how to lead differently. Now, with over 70 years on this planet and quite a lot of that time in the workplace, you must have seen the concept of leadership change significantly. Who was your first sort of servant leader role model? What made you first realize that servant leadership was actually going to make people better leaders? Well, strangely enough, it started in the Royal Navy when I joined as a young boy. I was 15 years old. And leadership in the Navy is an example, in my view, of how it should be done, particularly in the Navy. Because when you serve in a small, relatively small ship in a minesweeper or a frigate, you're very, very close to everybody. You live and work very, very close and you get to know people, whether it's the captain of the ship or whether it's the able seaman of the ship, you really do get to know them. And having had a number of captains in different ships with completely different ways of working, it soon permeates again through the organization, an important one now, obviously, being a warship. But the behavior of the leader is so visible and it, and it sets the tone for the whole ship itself. And then moving out into the commercial world, my first role leader there was actually, the, they were called personnel in those days, regional personnel manager who really looked after me. And he, he must have seen something in me and he helped me develop and train and understand what I needed to do to have a successful career in, at that time, I wanted a career in personnel. So that was the first real leader that I saw behaviors in that I wanted to replicate because I knew he was successful and I knew that the way he behaved then made him successful. It's not really about being a likable person. Of course, that's nice if, if the person's likable. It's much more about how he, he or she behaves in the workplace. And I've seen some real bad leaders and haven't stayed very long in the organization. And I guess that says something about it. And that today is even more important because the balance of power has shifted in the workplace. The fight for talent is critical, particularly at this stage in organizations, because they need good talent within their companies to drive them forward. And people who are talented have a choice. More and more people have a choice of what company they work for. They'll look at what does a company stand for? How does it look? Have they got net zero policies, for example? All those sorts of things that are important to individuals now, they will make a choice on. They will look at the company. It isn't about company values stuck in a wall like it was in the 80s when I was there. You had the three pages of values and all the other sorts of stuff that used to get stuck in walls. And I used to stick it on walls myself. But nobody really read it. Nobody really knew what it was. 
And at the end of the day, I think we touched on it at the beginning. It's about behavior. It's about what you see in the workplace. It's about what you feel every day when you go into work and you, and you see people working, you see leaders behave in particular ways. And that, that's the sort of behavior that this organization, you can be successful in if you demonstrate those behaviors. And so it's up to you whether you want to replicate that or you want to move on to another organization. And, and as I said, as I started to say there, it's even more important today because people have a choice and the workplace itself has shifted hugely in a very short space of time. It was very slowly beginning to change, but pre-COVID leaders were very, very reluctant to allow people to work from home, for example, because they couldn't control it. People out with their vision were out with control. Well, that's, that's on its head now. That's completely changed. And it's not the case that people are less productive just because they're working at home. It's about what's their output? What do they produce for the organization? And how's the organization measuring that? So it's much more about measuring what people do, the output of what people do. Than are they there nine to five, five days a week? Probably working, producing three days a week. So it's not. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And it's how value it is to the organization. There's a balance to be struck. It's not all working from home. There are issues with it that I know human resource and CEOs are trying to navigate now about how you maintain the culture of an organization. How, how do you do that if people, a lot of people are working from home. There are ways of doing it and there's a lot of innovative stuff going on now to, to make that happen. But that, and that's the future of work. It will never be the same again. I used to work in the interiors industry. And I, I know that the organizations that make desks and chairs and cabinets are scurrying around looking at other things to make for collaboration spaces, making spaces comfortable to work on, having spas, having restrooms, having all sorts of things that people require now. It's all about well-being and mental health, significantly looking after employees' mental health and making sure that they're fit and they're able to work and they're able to contribute. And the company has a part to play in that. I'm going to dive in with an, another question you've just posed because you shared with us so much great insight there, Lawrence. And it reflects to you reflecting on how different the workplace is now. There's a lot being said about that. There's a lot being written about it. And it's actually very hard to pinpoint what is so different and gritty because remote working is not new. The debate of do we hybrid, don't we hybrid, it will roll on. I liked how you talked about output. But just to frame this up, if you were in a workplace today and had to carry out those decisions as a leader of how you create balance, what would be three things you would do to enable individuals in this changed, different workplace to? operate to respect that balance? The first thing I do is communicate with them, find out what do the employees want? Because there has to be a balance in this. There has to be a balance in terms of what people want and what the company are prepared to do. Because clearly the leader has obligation to make sure that the company performs or outperforms where it is today. And in order to do that, you communicate with your staff throughout the whole organization. How do they want to work? So you've got a framework to start with, that you know when people want to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or whatever it is, or three days or two days. And then you look at, can you really accommodate that? 
Um, and again, this, this all comes back to behavior as well and how, how you treat people and how you listen to people and how you communicate. Even the bad news, you know, you may not be able to allow someone to work from home. It may be a job, whatever it is, you just cannot work from home. So you have to find alternatives for that person. Now, the alternatives might be that they can no longer work for the company. And that has to be the individual's choice. Those are hard choices, but it may well be that you've tried to find the best solution you can to allow hybrid working, but you can't for the organization's good. And then you have to make that decision. That's the reality of life. And that is just life. But for the organization as a whole, what I would be looking at as a CEO, okay, if this is what we want, or this is what the employees want, and this is what the organization wants, where can we meet in the middle? And if we can meet in the middle, that's great. That doesn't affect my organization. What it does is give me motivated employees because we're able to work the way we want to work. And at the end of the day, it also comes down to money because hybrid working can save the organization money in terms of footprint, in terms of where the offices are, in terms of hiring the best people. They don't actually need to be in the office. They may be in Singapore with the office in Glasgow. That, that, but it makes the company better because the employee that they've got in Singapore is a world-leading expert in whatever it is they do. So they've got access to all that sort of hybrid working that can really benefit the organization in ways that you could only imagine before. I don't know if I've covered three, Vicky, but certainly the, the communication and the involvement of staff in any decisions that you make are critical. You don't necessarily have to follow the recommendations but you have to have good reasons for not following them. And you have to explain those reasons why you don't follow them. And then you'll bring the employees with you. And you know yourself, you'll have made the right decision because you've involved the employees, you've looked at their requirements, you've looked at the organization's requirement, but there's a balance to be struck. I think very valuable. I think, you know, it's very easy to say, here's three points. But within what you've just covered, there's some very valuable learnings that can actually be put into very effective use. Thank you for that. So to our next question that we have here, and this speaks a little bit to the nature of us within Defy Expectations. You know, we like rules, but we also like to be a little defiant. And so we have a question that we'd like to discover from you. And, and we'd like to know, what would be the pearl of wisdom that is slightly defiant, you would pay forward, actually not just for young people thinking about leaders, but also established leaders thinking about returning. We've spoken about this before and it's very much on the agenda. So for those young thinking about their first step about leading and for those returning, how have you been defiant and how would you pay forward that pearl of wisdom? I think the first thing to say is Leadership's a privilege. It really is being, being a leader is a privilege and it puts you in a, a fantastic position of being able to achieve what you want to achieve if you do it correctly. But with that is a whole ton of responsibilities. So it's not the, uh, it's not the easiest job in the world, but it can be really, really satisfying if you, if you get it right and it can benefit the organization and more importantly, can benefit you. As an individual, I think one of the greatest strengths that a leader can have is looking at he or she's organization and uncovering the talent that they've got within it. Because time and time again, I've seen organizations go out and recruit 
talent when actually there's a heap of talent sitting in their own organization, but they haven't yet uncovered it or they haven't found a way to, to identify it. And I've seen that personally in a number of organizations that I've worked for. We've managed to uncover one. I'll never forget it. It was when I worked for Bells in Perth and we did one of these outward bound things. And it was a, a young lady that looked after the company cars. And she absolutely shone during this thing that we were doing. She just took complete control and it took everybody by surprise. And nobody knew she had that in her. And there was no method at that point of time of, of recognizing somebody like that. But if you just think of the money that we could save in looking up our own internal company first, is there anybody in this organization that we could, they won't have all the skills, but if you train and develop them, you'll get an awful lot back. They'll stay with you because you've developed them and you've trained them. So I think that's one of the, the greatest things. If you can find your talent within your own organization, I think that makes you a much better leader as well, because there's. When you become a leader, it's nerve wracking because you think you've got to have all the skills that you think a leader has, and that's just impossible. You, you haven't got all the skills. How often have we promoted the supervisor because he's a wonderful supervisor and we make him the general manager and he struggles and that's an awful waste of an individual. You don't have all the skills. You never will have all the skills, but there are ways of developing that there are skills within your team. There are skills out with your team that can support you as well. Things like non-exec directors, for example, is the biggest, bigger organization, chairman of the organization, the whole host of skills there that are able to help you with. I was looking at uh, sayings. I'm a great one for sayings that I really love Simon Sinek because I think he simplifies everything. And one of his sayings was the value of a true leader is not measured by the work they do, but the work they inspire others to do. And I think that's a, that's a brilliant saying, and it typifies for me what a good leader is. There's, I heard, he may not be the best example, but I heard Branson the other day talking and he said when he started, he didn't know the difference between gross profit and net profit because he didn't need to. He hired the, the best finance person that he could to handle all that stuff. And he concentrated on the entrepreneurship of growing his business. And it's, it's a, an example of what you can do and how you can succeed through others. Thank you, Lawrence. I sort of want to give you an opportunity now to do a completely shameless plug for your charity. <laughs> so I think you do fantastic work, and I'd love to hear a little bit more, and so you can share it with our audience as well, oh. about what the charity does and the aim and what you're working towards. Okay, the charity called I was going to, and it's a kind of Scottish word that I was going to do this and I was going to do that and I never really did it. And that's a very Scottish thing. But what we try and do, and we work mainly with young adults, 16 to 24, 25 year old. We do work with veterans and others as well, but that the main focus is that generally they haven't had much of an education or they've come from a difficult background and perhaps had some mental health issues. And what we do is we introduce them to what we call a musical experience. We're not trying to turn them into musicians, but we are trying to engage them. We're trying to get them to open up and we run four sessions of about two hours with ourselves and a professional musician. And what we do uh, in a nutshell is they make a song. 
at the end of the four-week period, they will have a song that they've contributed to. They will decide what the chords are, what the beat is, what the rhythm is, what the words are. And that's, the, that's an important bit, what the words are. How we get that out is we, we ask them to pick a subject that they perhaps want to sing about. And for example, one was motherhood, we had a, a bunch of single mums, and they wanted to sing about motherhood. And we, we asked them, what does motherhood mean to you? And they come up with all sorts of different words that we capture. That's at the point where the musician, singer, songwriter begins to put together the song itself, but it's very much delivered by them. And then at the end of the day, he does the song and it becomes theirs. They're given the song, either they download it or they, they get it on a sticker or whatever. But the important thing by the end of that, we'd ask them at week one, at the end of that, you're going to have your own song. You're going to make a song. They, they don't believe it. And, and at the end, they actually have, but more importantly, They've opened up, they've talked to people, they've joined in, they recognize that they can actually achieve things. So it has a big effect on beginning to open them up where other support services then can come in and pick them up and take them on to further education, give them some other training and development, or actually find their apprenticeship. And that happens to most of them, not all of them, but it happens to most of them. So it's very satisfying from beginning to end, from a musical introduction to an apprenticeship. You know, it's that, that's the ideal. So that's what we do. Lawrence, thank you for taking the time to talk so passionately about the charity that you give your time to and what it means to others. And it takes me back to what's been so thought provoking about our conversation today. And there's been so many points that have stood out. It's also interesting because we speak on a regular basis, but so many insights come out that we're discovering about you as well. A couple that really stood out for me is this, you talk about, you know, always have an objective. And I'm a great believer that if, if it's not written, it's not happening. So it's very reassuring that one of the simplest and most fundamental things to do that you refer to is, is have that objective, have that goal. And I think quite often there's, there's too much emphasis put on, are we doing OKRs? Are we doing KPIs? What's the type that we're documenting? Instead of just actually in simple language, what's the thing you're trying to do? So I really like it that you've brought it back to that most simplest but essential thing of always having objectives and how it's motivated and driven you. Another really big standout one is, is your stories and your time with, with the Royal Navy and how you really called out that it's all about behavior and just how key the leadership behavior was when you're in such close proximity and also borne out by another reference that I guess you talked about your employees who you serve and in that case on, on the ship are always watching. And I think it's all too easy to, with so much academic stuff written about leadership, forget the fundamentals of others are always watching you and that your behavior will set the tone for everything. I love how you've brought to us some real fundamentals that no matter what will all, always be the backbone of great leadership. Thank you for that, Lawrence. Thank you. We titled this the habit of paying forward or giving back. And I think from that perspective, Lawrence, you're incredibly inspirational. What you do and the consistency with which you do it is inspiring. And it's also heartwarming because you rarely make a song and dance about it. As Vicky sort of said, we all speak quite regularly and it's just a very natural part of who you are. And that's beautiful because it makes such a, a great impression on people. 
And we talk in leadership about the cynics, about the Bransons, about all the people who have done it. And we all know about it, but actually it's those leaders who are slightly more humble, who are slightly more working in the background, who have a much bigger impact on the individual when they go home at night. So thank you for bringing your inspiration and spending the time with us this morning. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks, Vicky. Well, if you've been as inspired as we have with Lawrence, our amazing guests we've been speaking with this week, check back in as we'll be running these regularly. And we cover every aspect of the skills and also the behaviors that leaders will need to continuously develop and evolve to thrive. Do look at our website, defyexpectations.co.uk, and remember to press the follow us button to get notified of the next episode we've got coming out. Thank you and see you next time.